have another interview for you. This time it comes from a writer, Mick Abrahamson, when he got to speak with A.J. Grand Scredden, the creative director and writer on Disney Illusion Island from Lala Studios. In this interview, they talk the past, present, and future of Disney Illusion Island and how the game came to be. All right, so thank you so much, A.J., for sitting down and chat with me. No, no, um, thank you for taking the time. I absolutely love Disney Illusion Island. So before we really get into the interview, um, tell me about yourself and the game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, where to start? So my role on the project is uh, I'm creative director and writer on the project. I co-wrote it with um, my writing partner, Kelsey. And Kelsey was one of my writers on Battletoads uh, when we did the 2020 sequel. Um, but yeah, like Illusion Island is just this wonderful experience we got to kind of create and go on this journey for, really, where, you know, it's not every day you get handed Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck and Goofy and get to create a whole new world for them to play in and a whole new bunch of characters for them to kind of interact with. And yeah, it's just, it's been an incredibly kind of surreal three years of getting to do what what is completely a childhood dream. That is so awesome to hear. And yeah, you touched on like, this is kind of like a fable property for many developers to work on. And we've almost not really seen Mickey and Friends really go on this new adventure like this in almost like 10, 20 years. Um, so what was that elevator pitch like to Disney to get not only a Disney property, but the Fab Four and to make it your own? Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, we'd obviously, we'd worked with Disney back in 2015, 2016. And, you know, just through changes in the industry, kind of that didn't work out. And so we'd kind of gone off, gone our separate ways. And we were making Battletoads. It was about... Late summer 2019, we're starting to try and figure out, okay, like, Battletoads is going to ship next summer. What are we going to do after this? Um, And we almost jokingly said, oh, like, maybe we should chat to Disney. And then we were kind of like, well, why don't we chat to Disney again? Um, So we got on a call together and it was just this really lovely call where kind of we talked them through how we changed and grown and matured as a studio. They spoke to us about kind of their what they were looking to do with their properties now, how they were approaching games. Um, and it just felt like catching up with old friends. And at the end of the call, we kind of said, like, okay, well, like, shall we try and do something together? And, you know, we all kind of agreed, yep. And we were like, we'd love to kind of have a stab at Mickey and Friends. You know, I'm a lifelong Mickey fan. My, my office is covered in various bits of Mickey memorabilia. And, you know, everyone was on board with that. And so kind of we went away and we started putting together a pitch and we knew we wanted to do four player. We knew we wanted to do the Fab Four. We very quickly figured out we wanted this challenge of like making a seamless world like Mickey game. Mm-hmm. And the, the strange thing is, and I said this recently, is that I don't think that, like, I don't remember a formal green light. I remember this initial conversation and I remember lots of back and forth conversations where we were just collaborating on what the game could be. But the next thing I know, we're making the game. Like, I don't ever remember, like, a big formal green light. I think that kind of speaks volumes to the the partnership in general, to be honest. It's just been this really natural feeling collaboration between ourselves and Disney. That is so awesome to hear. (laughs) And was there any part of the pitch itself that it was not going to have any combat or did that kind of come naturally as the development process came along to create this game? Yeah, so no, that was never the intention. There was never like, it wasn't like I sat down and was like, hey, we're going to make this game have no combat. Um, in fact, when Grant, our lead designer, and I sat down and started trying to really figure out what could this project be, combat was in it. Like combat was up on the wall. We covered my office in post-it notes and combat was up there. And we almost avoided the conversation we we dug really deep into all the abilities and what the world could be and the game mechanics 
And we almost seemed to deliberately avoid the conversation about combat. I think part of that was because we didn't necessarily fully believe in it. And we kind of let it go for quite a while to the point where we actually prototyped some initial combat bits in terms of like tech built it so you could jump on an enemy's head. And then when mm-hmm. design were kind of prototyping out the different types of enemies, we said to them, hey, like, you know, use this how you see fit. Like, you know, put it on enemies if you think it makes sense. Don't put it on en- Don't feel you have to have it on all enemies. And then we did like 10 or 12 enemies and they used it like once and a half, like two times at most. Um, And Grant and I sat down and we were like, we're almost telling ourselves we don't need combat. Like we're designing a game that has got the ability to have combat in it and we're not putting it in. Like why, why, why do we want combat? Why is combat still up on the wall? And the only actual answer we had was, oh, well, Metroidvanias traditionally have combat. Like that was the only reason we had for keeping combat up on the wall was this concept that because other games had done it, we had to do it. And I think once that clicked, um, we felt very comfortable throwing the post-it in the bin and kind of stripping what little combat there was in the game out of the game. So combat was initially like on the ideas. You said that you're making ideas for like all the different gadgets at that time too. Does that mean you had some ideas in mind for different gadgets of combat for each of the characters initially uh, before the post-it bin went in the bin? We never really dug deep into that. I think combat for us, when we had it, was very basic. It was your traditional Mario jump on the head style combat. Okay. Um, We hadn't kind of thought about like the quack shot route or like throwing apples like the older Mickey games. Um, I think it was like, okay, let's get the basics in. And I think once it became clear to us that it wasn't what we wanted and the basics even felt like too much, we knew not to dig any deeper. So that's really interesting. And... Another interesting part, like just starting the game, getting into it, and realizing that there is no combat was really kind of a wake-up call because it didn't really feel like that came across that much in the trailers. It just felt like a really cool Metroidvania game with Mickey and friends, getting all these cool gadgets. But another really fun moment in the game, really realizing was how unique each of the characters were in their own way and getting those gadgets as well. Um, What were your favorite gadgets to make and what really inspired you all to make different gadgets for each of the characters? Yeah, I mean, that was a ton of fun. Um, Oh, so favorite ones to make. Well, let's start with the, I'll start with the Inspiders. So um, one of our key pillars was um, create a playable cartoon where you play as a cartoon. Um, And that's quite a wordy pillar. But the reason for that amount of words is that when we made Battletoads, one of our pillars was create a playable cartoon. And we felt very confident we did that. And the difference was that when we came to do Illusion Island, is we really wanted to lean into the fact that this was a cartoon about cartoon characters. Like, we didn't want it to be, like, realistic. I know I know, Battletoads was far from realistic, but there were still some rules that applied. Um, and so we really then looked to kind of define their personalities. What were the personality traits or the running gags we wanted? And we kind of ended up with this, you know, for Mickey, his thread through his gadgets is very much like, very cartoony, giant pencil. You know, it's very much leaning into... Mm-hmm. cartoon tropes Minnie was all about adventure you know Minnie got the 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 carabiner to swing on she got the pickaxe to climb the wall with Minnie was about being adventurous Goofy's all about food you know the giant mustard bottle um and you know getting the chili pepper for his boost jump um and what we knew from the start and we kind of knew this before we knew anything else is that we wanted Donald to get what was ever left in the box after everything else was taken. Like <laughs> we, 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 we always wanted him to get the short end of the stick. Um, Those were some of the funniest moments in the game, especially playing as Donald to see every time he realized, Oh, he almost got forgotten about again. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it was so fun to write that stuff because we, you know, we had um, the gag around the plunger, which is obviously just a classic kind of bad item to get when everyone else has got something great. But then we also had the stuff like, you know, when he complete just assumed he didn't need any help with swimming because he was a duck. Um, and we got to do some gags there where we didn't directly say the words because you're a duck, but we almost had the characters treading on each other to kind of make the gag land. And um, he's just such a really yeah. funny, funny character to write for. Yeah, what was, was it Mickey said? Uh, we don't really talk about it anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. And then obviously we had all the um, the only works in text fe feather physics jokes when he gets handed two feathers for the flapping. And yeah, it was just... They're just such an incredible group of four characters to write for because they all have such unique personalities, but they all just combine so well. Like they all just play off each other. And so speaking of writing for these characters, were there any hoops that they had, had to jump through or any unseen restrictions they had to work around when creating these specific versions of Mickey and Friends? You know, you know what? It was really just about being authentic. Um, and that's all we wanted. Um, there wasn't like a big book of rules we got given. I think that, you know, there was stuff that we really quickly discovered that was important. Like if we're doing any anything regarding voiceover, like, you know, don't give Donald gigantic monologues. You know, that's not an easy voice to do in general, let alone for large bits of, uh, like large bits of information. So we tried to keep critical path information away from Donald during vocalised scenes, um, <laughs> you know, I think the, the best rule I got told, and I'd never really even thought of it, was just like, there's no there's no obscenities. There's no replacing obscenities in this world, right? You can't swap out a naughty word for a different word because that's still in the spirit of being naughty. Um, and so that was really fun because it's quite easy as a writer, especially in the type of writing I do, it's quite easy to fall back on, you know, the classic Spy Kids shiitake mushroom style gags. Um and so it kind of it really kind of pushed me to not rely on that stuff. So that was super interesting to figure out. And they're just such distinct voices. And I think I spent a lot of time at the start of the project, as did Kelsey, my writing partner, figuring out, like, how do you write for these characters? How does something sound Mickey? Like, what words is it in what order that makes a sentence sound distinctly mini? And getting to then see those scripts we wrote being performed by the voice actors, you know, Brett and Caitlin, who are Mickey and Minnie, just absolutely out of this world. And like Bill and Tony, who play Goofy and Donald, have been those characters since the 80s. Um, so like that's my childhood Goofy, who I've always adored. Like getting yeah. to see him in my script, that was unbelievable. Um, and they are such, like they're such legendary professionals. It was amazing that they'd be reading our lines and every now and then they'd maybe swap two words around and... There was just times where like Bill would literally do that. He'd be performing a goofy line and he'd naturally change two words around from how I'd written it. And I'd sit there and I'd be like, that sounds 10 times more goofy. All he's done is change those two words around and that line is 10 times more goofy. And it's because they are those characters. Like they yeah. know those characters. Um, so it's just an absolute pleasure to get to work with them. That sounds like an absolute dream come true just to sit down with them for even just a couple hours and hear them do those voices. So did you and the team sneak in any lines that were just for you guys to hear them say as those characters? I mean, um, my favourite, favourite story from all the voiceover stuff is um, I was remoting in. So the sessions were taking place in, in LA and I was remoting in from Essex, where I am in England. So it was like two in the morning and um, I was at home working from my home office and 
I've got a little pug, my pug Hugo, and he likes his routine. And he was quite annoyed that I had not come to bed yet because it was so early in the morning. And he came in during Caitlin's session for Mini and he jumped upon my lap. And Caitlin had a scream so she could see us on camera. And she saw um, Hugo get on my lap. And then she started talking to Hugo in character as oh Minnie my Mouse. God. So Minnie Mouse was talking to my dog. And like, that is literally a core memory. That is not something I'm ever going to forget. Um, but yeah, like it, that, that was amazing. And, you know, there was um, just all the performers were fantastic. There was a couple of people who like where Deborah Wilson actually voice. Uh, she did. She like did the um, bird sounds for the peahen. Um, and obviously Deborah mm -hmm. Wilson's like, you know, this came out the same year she did a main role in Jedi Survivor, like, and she's doing bird squawks for us, which she was unbelievable at. And then she did a very, very good impression of me, which the rest of my team who were on the call found hilarious as she was doing her Essex accent pretending to be me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was all wonderful. It was all absolutely wonderful. And so going back to the writing, it really felt like these characters were kind of like a really interesting mix of the old Disney and new Mickey and Friends, especially like it, it felt like inspired by the new cartoons, which sadly just recently ended, which have you seen the last episode yet? I have Steamboat Silly. It's fantastic. Oh, it was so good. So, so good. were there any specific shorts or movies that inspired these specific versions of Mickey and Friends? Like, it sounds like a cop out, but the actual truth is like the, the entirety of Mickey's history. So like, okay. I, I went back at the start of this project and like, I digested everything. I watched every short, all the features, read books. Like I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just a Mickey fan, but like I, I could be, a, you know, for three years of my life, I was like a walking encyclopedia. Um, but tonally, the big thing for me was I love like the 30s and 40s stuff, like Lonesome Ghosts, through the, like through the mirror, Clock Tower, like all that stuff. And it's because... They were a little bit cheekier back then. You know, they're very, like, it's, it's, their cheekiness has definitely come back in the Paul Ruddish stuff recently. But, you know, I think that was almost the peak cheekiness back in the early days um, before the Playhouse Disney stuff. And so I really loved that stuff. And I always had this thing in my head whenever I've discussed anything to do with the Fab Four of, like, what would Lonesome Ghost have been like if Minnie was there? Because Minnie's not a party pooper, so she wouldn't have stopped it happening. She wouldn't have been treading on the fun. But Minnie is really smart. And those three dudes, when they're together, are absolute idiots. So, like, the idea of, like, what would it have been like if Minnie went on these adventures as well? Um, and I found that really interesting. So I really had that in mind when I was writing for them. And we just wanted it so that it felt like Mickey. I didn't want you to watch our cutscenes and be like, oh, they've just put Mickey's visuals on a character that they've written completely new. And at the same time, I wanted it to still have a little bit of like a Delala flair to it so that it felt, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I, I, this this feels familiar to me. It is, it's Mickey. It's my Mickey. But this feels like a new story and like a slightly newer take on the characters. Were there any Disney characters that you were hoping to get in this game too that you would love to have written for? I mean, my team are always on my back about where's Daisy. Um in fact, I think everyone <laughs> is on my back about where's Daisy. There's why in one of the very early cutscenes in the game, when you see um, the Hokans for the first time, one of them's actually wearing a shirt that's got a picture of Daisy and a question mark. And that is because it's the number one question my team always asks me. Um, I'd love to have wrote for Daisy. 
I'd love to vote for Chip and Dow, Oswald, like a lot of the Disney like Toontown characters. Um, but it was always these four. Like it was never, it was never like, oh, okay, we're gonna do Mickey, Minnie. What about the other two? Like it, it, that was non-negotiable for me. Like I knew that these were the four I wanted to write for. Um, you know, I hold out hope that you know over the next couple of years the game finds its audience and maybe there's you know maybe there's reason for us to go back and do DLC or bring some more Disney characters into the story somehow. So, are you saying there's no plans currently for DLC or even adding future online co-op or bring it to other platforms? There's there's no hard plans for any stuff like that. What okay. I will say is, and what what I am allowed to say is that there is a, you know. <laughs> We've still got a little team on the project at Delala, and that team is, mm -hmm. you know, paying close attention to um, the players. You know, little things like, you know, we had a player message us the other day because he's playing using a SNES-style controller and you can't navigate the map with that. And so we're kind of looking at what sort of quality life stuff we can be doing, if, if there's any fun little updates we could be putting into the game. So... I definitely wouldn't say this is the last you've seen of us working on Illusion Island, um, but okay. there's no big, big plans at the moment. Like I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to be coming out anytime in the next few months and introducing a brand new Daisy five-hour add-on for the game. <laughs> <laughs> no horse uh, add-ons either. No, no, no horse. No Mortimer. Uh, no, no, no Clarabelle. None of that yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> Darn. Um, and so let's go back to the game development a little bit where like the biomes were very unique. They all felt like they stood out, but they also flowed together really well. My favorite was the water level. First water oh, level you. I really liked, especially in a 2D style game. Um, oh, were there so any much. biomes Were there any biomes that really didn't make the cut or didn't make sense, but you were thinking about at the time that you wanted oh, to add yeah. on to? Yeah, yeah. So um, the game was originally going to be five biomes. Um and when we got to the end of pre-production, we realized it just wasn't achievable and it didn't make sense. Like we were almost doing biomes because we loved the idea of the biomes rather than them making sense for the game. Um, so trying to think of what ones we had. So we had we had a really interesting one, which was a little bit like a Halloween fun fair meets Land of the Dead. So that was a biome for a while where like you almost so like a not so not so scary party. Yeah, it was kind of like you went on the journey of life almost all the way through to death um it, okay. but in a fun in a fun way not in a deep dark way um so we had a biome for that we had a um a, oh yeah one that was a little bit of an homage to castle or well i can't remember which one which was um we had like a board games biome at one point so all made out of like weird takes on board games and things like this and a lot of it like felt like it was would have been great back in Castle and World of Illusion days, but didn't necessarily fit in with what the world of Monoth that we were making. Um, mm -hmm. So like the three that we landed on were always, those three were always there once we'd kind of started refining what ideas we wanted. Um, and when we came down to make the decision of cutting from five to three, like it was an easy decision, which ones, like we always knew we were going to keep those three. Um, but yeah, there was, there was tons of ideas. There is a lot of concept art inside of Dalala archives of weird and wonderful ideas that came from our art team. And I just gotta say, making some of the collectibles being concept art as well was really, really cool to see, especially when you got the um, the little floating orbs. I forget the name on the oh, top yeah, of my head right now. The glimpse. The glimpse, yeah. yeah. And those slowly unlocking basically a concept art of each of the areas was really cool to see. And... Okay. On the other collectibles, too, where you collected some of the old memorabilia, 
and getting the cards and having hidden Mickeys. Were there any collectibles that you were hoping to add as well? Was there any rhyme or reason for why you added those specific collectibles to the game? Yeah, I mean, this was me getting to really take advantage of my role on the project and just picking all my favorite Mickey cartoons. So um, that spread you see, that spread of kind of all the cartoons that are contained within the memorabilia, they're like all my favorite ones. Um, and, you know, my teammates say otherwise, but I like to think I don't I don't play the uh, I'm the boss card very often. Um, but I definitely took advantage of it for this so that I got to include all my favorite stuff from the start through to the modern things, you know, getting to put in Lonesome Ghost, which as I've mentioned is my favorite, but going back to the older stuff and then mm -hmm. putting in like Potato Land stuff from the modern shorts. Like, yeah, the, the cartoons you see are literally all my favorite ones to the point where the number of Mickey memorabilia in the game was based off of the number of cartoons I was not willing to cut from the list, basically. <laughs> so is it safe to say that you are the disney adult of the office i think i think there's a lot of disney adults here i think uh -huh. i am probably the uh i think i'm probably the one the most obsessed with mickey and friends i think i think that uh <laughs> the team would probably give me that one um and yeah i mean that's what made this so nice like literally next to me like literally just to my right i've got my my childhood mega drive or genesis copy of castle of illusion and Quackshot, like the actual copy I had when I was a kid is here and um it's just really amazing to like you know I had that next to me for inspiration but now I get to look over and see that and then like looked look just to the left of that and I get to see the box for our Mickey and Friends game so like it has you know this industry can be tough at times but this has been yeah. an absolute dream come true and those designs you added again the they felt like your own and your team's twist on those um items like the yeah the costumes that were worn, some of the tools that were worn felt like they would fit perfectly into the universe that you guys created. And what was it like to create your own versions of Mickey and Friends for those specific designs and kind oh, of I mean, build off into, into your own fantasies and uh, memories? I mean, it's amazing. Like, there's not many people in the world that have redesigned the Fab Four. Like, you know, it's a very short list. You look at Mickey's design, even through the last hundred years, you know, and it is not, you can probably count them on two hands. Um, so getting to know, like, we didn't know when we signed on if we'd be doing that or not. It wasn't like a deal breaker for us. Like, we didn't say to Disney, we're only doing this if we can design them. We wondered at first if we'd have to take a certain design from a certain era. And then Disney were very much like, no, like, this is, you know, this is the la la game. We want to know what, what does the, you know, what was now known as Illusion Island? What does the Illusion Island version of these characters look like? And that was amazing. And such a lot of trust for them to give us. And so uh, Lucy, who's our art director, was also our lead character designer, um, got to do like, you know, we got to work out what the Fab Four are for our game. And we wanted to make sure that they harked back to the stuff we loved. So like the white face Mickey era, we wanted to make sure they had a little bit of a modern vibe to them, but we also wanted to make sure they were designed for the type of gameplay. And that's kind of why you see the longer limbs, the bigger hands and feet for the readability for when the camera zooms out. Um, you know, we got to take Mickey, you know, we got to take the classic Minnie Mouse and rather than putting her in the polka dot dress with the heels, you know, we put her in flats and a jumpsuit because it's what made sense for the adventure. And it was just a really incredible process. And Disney were just so supportive the whole time. And so we, we literally got to live out these childhood fantasies that, you know, of kids who get to draw 
the Fab Four having adventures on a bit of paper, and we got to do that, except we were doing it within a, an entire video game. Oh, it's so awesome. And so you mentioned before that you all have created Battletoads. You've created a property for Disney with the Fab Four. What is the next big dream property <laughs> that you and your team would like to work with next? Oh, it's, it's this is the hardest question I ever get asked um, because there's so many. Like quite often myself and my leadership team here, we will like go, okay, like let's start thinking about the next project or we think about the next five years and we're like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I still own the company 80%. The rest is owned by friends and family. So we don't have a board of directors to report to. So we don't have to worry about what does the next five to 10 years look like financially. We just have to worry about what's going to be fun for us for the next five to 10 years. And mm -hmm. we always end up writing a big list of all the different IP. And nowadays, I think 90% of it ends up being owned by Disney because let's be honest, they own all the good stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a ton of Disney stuff we'd love to do. Obviously, like, look, there's there's plenty of adventures we'd love to go on with the characters from Mouse Turn and Duckburg and Toontown in general. And then they've got lots of great characters in the feature films. You know, you've got all the, then you've got Lucas stuff, the Marvel stuff that's there. Um, we've had a look, you know, that's, that's, we've looked at stuff outside of Disney's purview as well. You know, we're at some point a few years back, we were, chatting about doing maybe a spawn game with Todd McFarlane, um, which, you know, would be a real departure from Mickey. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we obviously like, we loved like Warner Brothers stuff as well. You know, we grew up with stuff like bugs as well. So yeah, I, I think for us, it's just about finding things like, we just want to work on stuff we love, like what IP can we work with that we love that we'll get to have a lot of fun making and that we feel we can bring value to because we don't want this to be a one-way transaction where we just get to make cool stuff. We want it to be like, you know, with Battletoads and to an extent with Mickey, our real goal there was like, yes, let's get people who love these IPs to re-engage with them, but also let's bring these to a new gaming audience. Like this, you know, nothing warms mm -hmm. my heart more than hearing, seeing the messages we're getting of people saying like, hey, this is the first game I've completed with my daughter and like, oh, I just played this with my kids and that's an absolutely amazing feeling. Like I, I remember, and I think about regularly playing Top Gun on the NES with my dad and playing columns with my mum. And they're like core memories for me. And the idea that we have become core memories for people because they play, these are the first games they played properly with their children. Like, yeah, like that's, that is the, the biggest thing we could get. And so ho hopefully we can just continue doing things like this and helping contribute to memories in the future and to build on, the, on that i was talking to my friend before this interview and he was saying that he's been having such a great time playing this game with his wife as just like a really fun bonding experience too and i can't wait to do that with my wife just to get back into the game play it again but also to see her experience with it too thank you and your whole team for making such a oh, really fun you. game that can bring the whole family together well thank you so much honestly i can't truly put into words how much it means to us and you know Every company says they're like a family and it's a very cliche and almost red flag thing to say nowadays, but family is the most important thing to us here at Delalo and that is the team and that is the team's family. And, you know, one of the play testers mm. who always tries our stuff is my wife. Like I, my wife loves video games. Like strangely, she's really good at stuff like Crash Bandicoot, which is an insanely difficult game. Um, mm -hmm. But, like she's not a hardcore gamer. So like I will always get Harry, my wife to kind of 
play our games early on and I'll, I'll watch her play and sculpt our tutorials around how Harry engages with the game. And, you know, nowadays, 11 years down the line, we've got people here who have got kids. And so seeing their kids come in and do play tests for us. Um, in fact, like the, there's a the quest in the game where you've got to find the mayor's kids and mm -hmm. the, gr the grunts the kids make are like staff members' kids. Um, we went and took them into the vocal booth and got them to make like the emote sounds. So like when you're discovering the kids, like one of them is my niece, one of them is Ollie, one of our IT guys' sons, one of them is Lincoln, our producer's sons. Um, and so they've got to they've been able to commit their kids' voices to to Disney World basically. So um, yeah, it's so you know, cool. It's, that sounds like a real bluey moment too. Yeah, it's just been it's just been awesome. It's just been absolutely wonderful. So one last question for you. This yes, might yes. make or break the entire interview. <laughs> what is your what Disney movie do you think is the most underrated, and what do you think is the most overrated? Oh my god, are you trying to get me in trouble? Um, I, well, I can tell you that the most underrated Disney movie is The Emperor's New Groove. Um, you know, okay, this I'll is allow a, that one. Other I correct answer is Treasure Planet. That's so this this is the internal war at Delala. This came up so much over the last three years. <laughs> It's almost like there's a team Treasure Planet and a team uh, Emperor's New Groove within the studio. Um, mm. Yeah, so, you know, I'd accept that as well. I think Treasure Planet is brilliant. Some incredible well-designed in that as well. Um, oh, man, most overrated. I don't know if there... Look, I, I don't know if there is. I, I'm, I am completely biased. You have to remember, I am a, a, a mm. Disney adult. I am completely biased. I think that... Uh, oh, God. Yeah, you know, I can't... Even this question... This question's coming from a fellow Disney adult, so... <laughs> yeah, and like, you know... I know Tom how hard it is to pick. Tom will be the first to tell you that I have no problems in being too honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can, like... I think the thing is, I think I'm the perfect age because when I grew up, I had this amazing back catalogue to deal with, like, you know, decades of the classic stuff, Snow White, all the princess yeah. films. And then, obviously, as I've got older... Pixar's come into the mix and then Disney Animation Studio have had like it's you know it's third renaissance so like I think maybe if I had been older or younger I would view some of the films differently but I think because of the age I'm at like I don't think can't remember really the last time I watched a Disney film and I didn't love it um mm -hmm. I'm trying to think at least can I tell you I mean I can tell you that the witch in Sword in the Stone used to scare the crap out of me uh, it might not be that it, I still love that film it's definitely not overrated but I can tell you that used to terrify me so I watched that film far less than a lot of the others um, I had the same reaction to the Black Cauldron and oh, the terrifying the Lich King or whatever his name the Devil King in that movie always scared me it even still scares me a little bit today uh, terrifying absolutely yeah. like absolutely terrifying we've got um Charlotte who's our marketing and brand person at the studio um she she loves a bit of the witchy stuff and uh, Black Cauldron's her favourite. And um, I was like, oh, I don't know if I've ever seen that. And she sent me some screenshots and I was like, yep, yeah, I have seen that and still see that in my nightmares. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, AJ, yeah. I will take that. I'll take that as a, you can't pick between your favourites. There's no, It's a Sophie's choice it's, for you. It's Sophie's choice. It's, it's a Sophie's choice. It, it really is because I'd give you an answer and then I think in 10 minutes I'd be emailing you being like, <laughs> no, can I take it back? I really regret my choice. Like, yeah, no, like, um, yeah, just, just say I'm an awful, awful interviewee and I couldn't give you a good answer to that question. No, this was 
This was so much fun. Thank you, AJ, for your time. Um, oh, thank are you. Are you able to talk about what's next for Dalala? Uh, as you can imagine, a wall of NDAs. Um, uh -huh. No, what, what I can tell you is we're we're kind of we're in a lovely pre-production on our next thing. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to be announcing it, but you know, getting to work on a project like Illusion Island has really kind of allowed us a like the, a real level of freedom to kind of really take our time and make sure we're hitting the, you know, a good quality bar. Mm -hmm. It's we love Illusion Island. We feel Illusion Island really, you know, is is a 10 times the progression we showed on Battletoads. And we just need to make sure that whatever comes out of the doors of Dalala next is, you know, 10 times as better than Illusion Island was. Um so but I do promise you this that like you you can message me anytime. You can call me and as soon as I'm ready to talk, I'll happily come back and speak to you because um we really appreciate the support you've given us. So it means a lot. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, AJ. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. And no, thank, thank you again you. for the team. Please give the team my love for creating such a really fun and really imaginative game. Oh, well, thank you so much. Honestly, it really does mean the world to us.